Well, welcome back to another episode in the weekly series, The Making of a Champion, that we've been doing for some time. This is, again, a review of the Morningstar Life School event that takes place every Saturday morning. This week, I'm going to do things a little bit in reverse. Normally, I record the review after we've done the presentation on Saturday morning. This week, I'm doing it in advance, and we'll see if that makes a difference. Uh, mostly, it's done because of a time constraint. Anyway, just a couple of quick reminders. Any of the previous episodes are available. If you if this is the first one that you're listening to, you can get information on any of the other qualities of champion that we've talked about by listening to some of the previous podcasts. There are notes available for every week's material. If you would like the notes and you're not receiving them, if somebody's invited you to listen to this podcast, you're not part of the Morningstar we'll say family of men, and, and you've just heard this for the first time and would like the material, that's certainly available to you. Simply email to us at men at mstarqtown.org. That's men at mstarqtown.org, exactly like it sounds. Okay, so just a few very quick highlights on where we've been. We began in week one of this series with introducing why championship performance was valued. We said the champions stand in the gap between what needs to be defended and what seeks to destroy it. The champions fight for good things. The champions tend to advocate for those who have no voice of their own. And that this is all essential work and this needs to go on so long as as we live and breathe. Because for everything that is made right and improved, something else is degrading and falling apart. So the work for champions is never done. The need for champions will always exist. From there, we looked at a couple of the qualities of championship performance. And I'm suggesting to you that there are at least eight or ten non-negotiables for championship performance. They all fit together, work together in harmony with each other. And if any one of those is missing in your life or mine that to the degree that it's missing, we're going to suffer in terms of our performance. So the first one of those was an intense desire. That means we have to want something very, very badly. We want it in a way that doesn't destroy us, but we also want it in a way that we single it out. We self-select it over all the other things that we could devote enormous amounts of passion and energy and, and development and learning to. So we self-select one thing, in favor of many other things. The next quality that we said is self-awareness. Every champion must be self-aware. Know who they are, where they are, what they are, and what they are not. Every champion must know his strengths, what he can count on in himself, what he can rely on. Those areas where he needs work, those areas where he's extremely weak, those areas where he shouldn't trust himself at all. Uh, if you look back through biblical stories, you can see many examples of biblical figures who were outstanding in one way, and yet lacked strength, lacked understanding, lacked a character quality in another, and that was their undoing. So self-awareness is the ability to keep ourselves from self-destructing, if nothing else. We said that the next quality was humility, and humility is, is not just you know, thinking poorly of ourselves. Honest, genuine humility is simply recognizing where we need help and being willing to admit that we need help and reach out for it. So that rather than projecting that we know and have all the answers while we don't and suffering for it that we actually acknowledge right up front you know I'm not good at this I don't know how to do this could you teach me could you show me and let me tell you my, my experience and the experience of millions of other people is this that for many things in life it is easier to be taught the basics that get us 
started on a learning curve than it is to try to figure everything out for ourselves. Certainly, figuring it out for yourself will protect your self-assumed sense of pride. But you have to ask yourself, if you want something truly, if you want something and that's something that you want or you want to stand for is important, can it really wait until you figure everything out by yourself? Because that's really the essence of humility. Are you willing to put everything else on hold, including the benefits that you're going to bring for other people, while you figure it out for yourself because you're too proud to ask for help or because I'm too proud to ask for your help? So well, that desire that we need, the self-awareness that we need, humility that we need, and then last week we looked at the quality of determination. Uh, determination is different from desire. Desire is the thing that we want. Determination is the things that we will do, the things that we will sacrifice in order to get there. And again, great podcast last week that covers determination, so we're not going to get into that again. Uh, this week, we start a new quality, and that quality is realism. Now, I know that Many of you are familiar with the, the jokes about the three kinds of people. There's optimists, there's pessimists, and then there's realists. And realists are always that middle class of people that is, generally speaking, pessimists, but pessimists who look at life with open eyes. Uh, but that's not what we're talking about this week. What we're talking about is understanding situations accurately. Now, again, as I've said before, if you're not a believer in Christ, if you're not a follower of Christ, then some of what I say early on may not be relevant to you, but I'd like you to at least consider it. We're going to start out with a couple of verses of Scripture, and then we'll move on from there. So let me read this text from the Psalms, written by David, or a reflection from David. Uh, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands and put everything under their feet. Now you might wonder what a verse like that has to do with realism. But we're going to begin our study and, on, and our journey into the f facet of realism by talking about two different kinds of people. Essentially in life there are materialists and there are supernaturalists. So a materialist believes that everything that is, is material, it is matter, it can be sensed, it can be perceived with the five senses. Supernaturalists believe that everything that materialists believe, in, in so far as they believe that there is a material world, and they believe that there is very much that can be sensed or perceived with the five senses, but they take it one step further. They believe that there is a source behind that, there, that there is a an organizing being who has created and put all this in place, and they believe that that being, if, if you're a Christ follower, they believe that it's more than just energy or force or, or some mystical thing, but rather they believe it's God. They've, we have a name for him. His name is God. And that God has made himself accessible through Jesus. And what that means to a realist is that you have two different realms that you operate in, and you see them highlighted in that psalm. He said, you know, David starts out by marveling at God. But there is David as a human being on the first plane of life, the material plane. And from his material plane, David is looking up into the stars and he is projecting and onto those stars a thought. There's more than just me and matter here. There's a being that's put all this in place. But then he says, this being, he believes, has not only put this in place, 
But this being has also assigned humankind to be responsible for it, to care for it, to manage it. In other words, here's what David is saying. He's saying, when I look all around me at the creation, I see evidence of the work of God. But when I see how the creation works, or at least how things work on planet Earth, I see very clearly evidence that God has entrusted us with the care of it. Here's how he says it in the last part of that text that I read. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. And so a materialist can only operate in the first plane. That's all he's got. Everything that he is going to use, the the raw material from which he will fashion championship performance, is determined exclusively by himself, by people, and, and by whatever that combination can muster together. But the non-materialist, or supernaturalist, as I've called them before, who operates in that first plane and the second plane, believes this. He believes that not only does he have access to everything that is within his power, but he also believes that he has access and authority from God in specific areas, especially the area that he feels that he should serve in. He feels that God has commissioned him toward that and will help him along the way with that. So before we move on, I want you to do a thoughtful few minutes in your own life. Do you live your everyday life? Not do you profess to be this, but do you actually live in your everyday, hour-by-hour life as a supernaturalist or as a materialist? In other words, when you make decisions, when you go to execute on things, do you execute purely out of what you think you can muster in your own strength? or the strength of those around you? Or do you have a means by which you consistently rely not only on yourself, which you certainly must, but also on the authority and the power and the wisdom and the guidance of God? So take a few moments to think about how true that is for you. Okay, we're back and we're going to move on to the next component of realism. And what I'd like to start with is a simple assessment that most uh, brain science confirms, and that is that the human mind tends to focus on things that will harm it or things that will bring it pleasure. It doesn't tend to focus on the things that already are. So as you're sitting there or driving in your car or whatever you're doing while you're listening to this, have you noticed the air that you're breathing? Probably not. Have you noticed the temperature if it's comfortable for you? Probably not. We only notice those things that are outside of optimal condition. Now, the reverse of that implies something extremely profound. It means that whenever we are comfortable, we lose track of that. Our mind sort of filters all of that out because it's not immediately necessary to our survival. Uh, If the room is of a decent temperature, if you have enough air to breathe, if there's no smoke in your eyes, if, if all things are ideal, you simply don't notice that as being important. And yet, how many things a day, by by that analysis, how many things a day do you have working for you that you never give thought to? Again, let me repeat this, we only notice the things that are working against us. We rarely notice the things that are already working in our favor. Uh, Pain is a great example of that. You know, who among us hasn't complained about pain? Pain we perceive to be the enemy. But, But in fact, 
rarely do we wake up in the morning and think to ourselves, wow, I don't have any pain in my back. I mean, unless for the last two months, you've had pain in your back every day when you woke up and one day you don't, unless that's been the case for you, you don't wake up and notice every part of your body that doesn't feel pain. I mean, that would just be time consuming. And, and you'd say, well, that's ridiculous. But what I want us to notice is this. We tend to, again, only notice the things that are wrong. And as soon as something is outside of what we'll call the comfort level that we are accustomed to, or what I'll call the Goldilocks syndrome, where things are, as, as that Goldilocks story suggests, just right. When things are just right, we don't notice them. As soon as things are not just right, our natural intuitive process goes directly to, let's make this right again. Now, when it comes to pain, very often we medicate. We say, I don't want to feel this pain, and therefore I'm going to medicate. Now, that might be helpful, that might be useful. I'll let you make the decisions about when it is or isn't right to medicate. But what I want us to be aware of as multifaceted beings with mind and spirit and soul, if you will, is this, that we experience not just physical pain, but we also experience what we'll call an intangible, emotional, psychological pain. There's loss that brings great pain to us. Perhaps there's fear that brings great trauma to us. There are emotional pains that are every bit as real, if not more real to us, than the physical pains that we can endure. And not surprisingly, humankind has been incredibly adept at developing medications that solve the psychological or the emotional pains. Uh, you know, there's a slew of both over-the-counter and prescription drugs that will take care of that. There's a lot of drugs that uh, are available behind the garage, so to speak. If you don't want to buy them over the counter, those help with that. There's alcohol. There's overeating. There's And, and th those are only the obvious ones. Only the obvious ones. Let me read to you a quote from a fellow by the name of Albert Camus. He says, There is no fate, no pain, which cannot be surmounted by scorn. Uh, scorn is that dismissive, contemptuous attitude towards something, and it leads to suspicion about all things. It leads to cynicism, which we covered in a previous podcast, and of course it leads to a jaded spirit about things. Every one of these emotional responses to an emotional feeling is a form of medicating that is actually corrosive to our own souls and our own way of thinking. In other words, we start to have an I don't give a rip about certain things in life. And what I want to suggest to us all, and speaking to myself as much as to anybody else in the room, what I want to suggest is this, that when that corrosive attitude settles in in one area of my life, it is very likely to seep over into other areas of life. Pretty soon my I don't care about this relationship because it's caused me pain, starts me to have an I don't care about those kinds of relationships in general. My feelings of I am so tired of trying so hard and being criticized or wounded in that, that I don't care about my performance in this area at work, pretty soon spills over into I just don't care about my work at all. And, and you can, you know, follow this anywhere you would like to take it, I, quite truthfully. As soon as scorn enters into your thinking, and as sort of a, a 
dismissive or a contemptuous or a cynical attitude about something, it destroys your willingness to humbly acknowledge what you don't know, humbly acknowledge where you're failing, and strive to move on. And that's why I'm saying that realism is such an a profound component of uh, successful performance. I have, to, I have to expect that things are going to be difficult. You know, I mean, coming back to the physical element of things, if, if I'm going to build a house and I'm going to build a what we'll call a stick house, meaning it's going to be framed up with two-by-fours and plywood and sheetrock and all the other sundry things that go into building a house, you know, if I'm going to do that work myself, and I am naive enough to assume that in the process of building an entire house, I'm not going to experience cuts and bruises, uh, maybe a couple of things that fall in my head or some things that smash my toe. If I really believe I'm going to build an entire house and not experience wounds, then when I get those wounds, I'm going to be shocked. I'm going to be angered. And I may not process that well. Realism demands of us that we understand that pain is a natural part of life. That frustration is a natural part of life. That slow schedules, progress impeded, setbacks, failures, all of those things are to be expected. And if we go into life with anything other than a realistic attitude about them, that that's going to have the effect of inviting us to be, as Albert Camus suggested, scornful. Right? There is no fate, no pain, which cannot be surmounted by scorn. Well, Anything that you do that is great, any time that you stand in a gap, you are standing against something, and you are standing against something that is going to resist you wholeheartedly. So as much as I have invited us to notice pain and notice how we tend to medicate pain, I want you to now pause and think about what do you do with your frustration? How? What is the means by which you relieve your frustration or medicate when i use that word i don't use it in a positive sense of the word what is it that you may be prone to do to medicate your pain your emotional trauma let's stop and think about that for a few minutes before we move on okay and we're back again and let me offer this parenthetical comment which is that as you're listening to this you may sense that these these individual components within the topic of realism aren't necessarily being presented in a, any specific order. So if you feel that after listening to this once, you need to go back and listen again and, and you notice some sort of a logical sequential process by which it would be helpful for you to process this, by all means, go ahead and do that. I'm just presenting to you the ideas as I've made notes on them for the Saturday morning presentation. And that brings us to the next thing. And this is another component of realism. Uh, I think most of us know this, but it doesn't hurt to pause and just reflect on it for a moment. And it's this. Championship performance, or the commitment to give championship-level performance. And what we've said that is, is to bring your best to something every single day. Yes, championship performance, as we're envisioning, it certainly includes wins. I don't think you can call yourself a champion if throughout most of your life you experience loss after loss. But in any championship performance, there are down times. In any championship team's history, there will be off-seasons or there will be individual losses within a season. So we're not talking 
about championship performance as being solely a success of, of accumulation of wins without losses, but we're saying that it is bringing your absolute level best to the performance each day and picking yourself back up if you do lose and pressing on confidently, assuming that you're going to bring your best to the next day, learn from your, your missteps, and be able to perform at an even higher level. And that's a good setup for what we need to say. Championship performance gives as much to us as it demands from us. This is the testimony of every parent. When young parents have their first child and they start to pour into the child, there is a point in time where every mom and every dad feels, no matter how much they were prepared for it, wow, this is certainly a lot. I didn't expect it to be this hard. As a matter of fact, there's been some studies that suggested that many moms, after they've had their first child or their second child, when they're interviewed some years later, have said that they'd have to think twice about it before they had children. Now, I suspect that those, some of those were people caught at a bad moment, even in their current parenting condition. But nonetheless, it reveals something, and that is that to perform at a high level, to give your best, is exhausting and it's demanding, and it takes a lot out of us. And so we tend to think, wow, this child has really gotten the best of me. And it doesn't mean that the child is manipulated or maneuvered to take advantage of the parent. What it means is the parent has given the best of their life to the child. But what you'll usually find when you talk to parents whose children are now grown or in their later teen years is parents start to have a shift in attitude and they start to say, you know, this process of being a parent has made of me things that I could never become in any other way. And I think that's true. And so each one of us who wishes to have a realistic attitude, we cannot also have a martyr's attitude. In other words, when you lay down portions of your life, when you sacrifice for the thing that you have chosen to stand in the gap for, the great dream that you have the great dream that hopefully God has placed on your heart, the great dream that has long-term significance and hopefully even eternal significance, it's going to ask a lot from you and we can at times feel as if it's an unfair exchange. This thing has taken all of my life and given nothing back. And yet, exactly as we suggested earlier, when it comes to noticing the things that are painful or not comfortable, those things outside the Goldilocks zone, in the same way as we notice them, we tend to notice what has been taken from us. We don't as easily notice what has been given to us by the gift of stretching and performing at a high level. And I want to suggest to all of us that performing at championship level and having a realistic attitude about it should cause us to take note of who we are becoming in the process and not with a puffed up sense of pride but with a, a realistic and authentic assessment of who we are, say, I am becoming more than I ever was. I am better now than I was a year ago. And I'm even proud in the right way of what I am becoming. All right, one more thing before we take another break. We're going to move now from realism when it, as concerns present to realism as it concerns time. So... Now we want to say that realism concerns your past, your present, and your future. Now, all of us need to live in the present. You can't allow your past to control who you are, but it is unrealistic to assume that your past has no influence on who you are or where you are. 
It's unrealistic to assume that the person who was raised by a single mom in a difficult circumstance has all the same assumptions about life, all of the same understandings as the person who was raised by a mom and a dad in a reasonably prosperous home where the mom and the dad exerted wise discipline over the children. Listen, your past and mine have in many ways shaped us. They don't need to define our future, but we cannot escape what they have done to us and who they've made of us. So let's not ever pretend that we aren't in some ways affected by our past, by the parenting that was done to us in our past, by the good that has happened to us in the past, by the mistakes that have happened to us in the past. This is part of self-awareness. Self-awareness coupled to realism says, I need to look into my past and see how it is impacting my attitudes about the present. But realism also concerns the future. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about two different forces, the passion force and the skill force. And we said that many young people start out with a great deal of passion about what they're going to fix in this world or change in this world. They start out with an immense amount of passion. They're going to change the world. But they have a very low level of skill that would help them to actually change the world. And what happens very often is they become disillusioned when they find the change process is hard and they don't understand that it's their skill level and their understanding, which is at that moment at a minimum, which is contributing to their lack of impact on the world. And so realism about the future says, I can't change everything about what's going to happen in the future, but if I work my present consistently, carefully every day, I without a doubt can have some impact on the future. Let's take a short break again. I'll be right back. All right, and we're back. And you may remember my saying this on a few different occasions, that you're going to see quite a bit of overlap from week to week because these topics do interlock quite literally and there's a spillover or connection where something could be talked about in one week relative to one of the qualities but it's inevitable that it's going to come up in another one of the qualities as as well and you're going to see some overlap here in a couple of moments Uh, the first thing that I'd like to introduce is a quote from Steve Jobs and he says we don't get a chance to do that many things in life And everyone should be really excellent, because this is our life, and life is brief, and then you die, you know. And we've all chosen to do this thing with our lives, so it had better be darn good. It had better be worth it. Now, I I think you could make the argument that Steve is looking at this from a plain one reality. Remember, we opened up this, this, today's review, I said that there are are people who operate simply at the material plane and then there are people who operate in the material plane but also in the supernatural plane and I'm certainly not here to judge Steve Jobs assessments about life and what plane he operated in but it would seem to imply that Steve is suggesting everything depends on his performance now there's a critical thing to consider here your view of realism is going to be determined by your belief system what do you believe is true Are you a materialist or are you a materialist slash supernaturalist? Because it's going to influence what you depend on throughout your life. It seems that Steve places all the emphasis on what he or those around him could do. If you are a materialist slash supernaturalist, 
then you have the opportunity to reach out to God who has commissioned you for this work and say, I need your help, I need your wisdom, or I need guidance to tell me should I press ahead or should I simply stop and wait. Now, each one of us has to sort through how, how we discern God's will on our own. There's certainly some good helps for that. This is not the place to have that conversation. That's a separate teaching, I believe. But again, come back to who you are and how you function. The next component I'd like to look at when it comes to realism is, do you know yourself? Uh, I remember a while ago uh, listening to a speaker who was talking about discovering that actually, although he had for much of his life considered himself a leader, and many other people actually considered him to be a leader, one of the things that he discovered in looking back across his life and where he had been most effective and most successful was when he played the role of second in command, not where he was the actual leader. Uh, there's other people that have discovered that so long as they are the person on the sales floor or out selling to people, they perform outstandingly. One of the common mistakes that businesses make is, is just promoting people up through the ranks and assuming that the person that was great at selling is now going to be a great sales manager. And it requires a completely different set of skills. But not only that, it requires a completely different set of interests and passions. And sometimes there isn't that crossover or carryover. When it comes to music, you know, there are people who are great songwriters, but you wouldn't necessarily want to put them behind the microphone or behind the guitar or the piano. On the other hand, there are great guitar players, pianists, vocalists, household names to us in country or rock or jazz or whatever it is. You know, they don't even write their own songs. Now, that's not a slight to them. There are people who do one thing extremely well, there are, and even when it comes to songwriting, there are people who write words. There are people who actually compose the music. And those skills are very often among some of the most successful songwriting acts that there are. Even that simple role of writing the lyrics and composing the melody has divided in two. So again, be a realist. Know who you are. Know really, really, really who you are. If if you if the job is that of a leader, what part of leadership is it that you excel at and what part is it that you're not good about? And just be honest about it. Realism is about focusing on your strengths more than it is about trying to fix every one of your weaknesses. So just stop right there. Whatever, whatever that thing is that God has called you to do, are you functioning in your strength at doing it or are you trying to do it all? Maybe you need to... Get alone with a friend for a little while and say, hey, I've been at this for a while. Somebody who knows you, but not only knows you, but also knows the thing that you're trying to do and maybe very familiar with it. Maybe it's somebody else at work or maybe it's somebody else in your ministry. And they've seen where you are and they've seen how you've struggled and they've seen your successes and they've also seen your failures. Why don't you give them permission to speak into your life a little bit and just ask them this question. Hey, of all the things that I do here, which ones do I really do the best? And... Be equally honest with me, which ones would you recommend that I stop doing because I'm just not as good at it as I think I am? Let's pause there for a minute, let you think about that a little bit, or, or consider who you might want to reach out to this week. Okay, we're back. We've got a couple of more points to make, and we'll wrap this up. 
The next thing that I want to talk about is going to seem as if, in certain senses, it's a contradiction of operating in plane two, in the spiritual plane of life. But in addition to being personally aware or self-aware, realism demands of us a situational awareness. And again, I realize we've probably talked about that during the self-aware component of this, but I have to return again to realism as it relates to situational awareness. You know, there are certain things that we can try that it is improbable at best that we will succeed at so long as certain situations persist in our lives or in our businesses or in our ministries or in our families. There are certain conditions that are usually, not always, but usually prerequisites to success. Is the wrong person on the on your team that's been on the team for five years and has been underperforming for five years and now you're bringing a heightened sense of passion and determination to reach a new big goal if that person has not demonstrated proficiency at helping you to reach the moderate goals that you have it would be unrealistic to expect that they are going to now step in to become high performers when they haven't demonstrated any history of that. The same could be true of your ability to generate finances. The same could be true of expecting something from a spouse. Uh, that one of the things that leads to dissatisfaction in marriages is, is just having unrealistic or overinflated expectations for what your mate is going to do when they have a long history of not doing that. And so continuing to believe that you're going to affect change that depends on people who have a history of not doing things in a, in, in a consistent way in the past is to be unrealistic. Whatever it is, this is a good time. We're not going to pause quite yet, but I quickly take a note to yourself. Ask yourself this question. In what way have I been untruthful? to myself when it comes to someone or something that I have been depending on for my success and I know honestly that this thing cannot be relied on this person cannot be relied on it doesn't mean they're a bad person it doesn't mean they're not a nice person you know some of the f most fun people to be around that I know are not people that I would put on a team of high performers they tell the best jokes they make you laugh they make you feel happy on the inside all day long. And maybe that's their skill. Maybe maybe that's their championship performance. But if you want them to be a high performer in your team, no, they're a distraction to it or they're going to disappoint you. So make sure that your sense of realism includes a situational awareness. Don't expect that you're going to perform at a high level and that your team is going to perform at a high level if it's populated by people that you know have failed you in the past it's just unrealistic all right what I'd like to do now because we're well into this and I like to try to keep these fairly short is just go through a quick set of reflection questions these are the questions that are at the back of the notes and I like to give the guys that are there on Saturday morning these questions so that they have them to go through during the week to help them process what they've heard and consider where they might need to make changes so here's the first question what are my go-to medications to avoid pain and disappointment and despair? So these are emotional 
pains that you're experiencing, what are your go-to medications to help you alleviate the pain rather than walk through the pain and confront it? All right, here's the next one. Is there any former desire or aspiration which I now pretend not to care about? In other words, I used to really want this. Maybe it's a great marriage. Maybe it's a successful business. And I used to say I wanted it, but now I pretend not to care about it when in all honesty, I know that's not true. I've allowed a heart condition of scorn or contempt to overshadow my desire for it. Uh, we all are familiar with the fox and the grapes. It's the old Aesop's fable where the fox can't reach the grapes that he really wants. And in the end, he says, oh, they're probably just sour grapes. In his heart of hearts, the fox still wanted the grapes. But because he hadn't figured out how to gain access to the grapes, instead of admitting that he had failed and needing to try again, he ended up condemning the grapes and saying they weren't any good. That's not a realistic attitude. That's what happens when we allow scorn to be seeded in our heart, take root, and grow. All right, here's the next one. Is there something I need to learn today about my reality, something I need to own, which I haven't owned? In other words, is there something in your own present circumstance which you have to finally come to terms with and say, this thing is in my life because I have allowed it to stay there, I opened the door to it to begin with, and I've not done everything within my power to get it out of my life, and I know this to be true, and I've been lying to myself up until this point. All right, here's the next one. Am I operating in only one plane? Am I living like a materialist, even though I claim to be a supernaturalist? So just be very honest about that. How much of your dream, how much of your deeply held desire have you turned over to God and allowed him to reform or refashion in such a way that he would say, I want you to do it this way? And then are you open to doing it that way? Here's the next one. Is there some work I need to do alone this week to adjust my attitudes, my expectations, or my commitment to work? In other words, remember the fox? Or remember, as Camus said earlier on, that scorn is, is the self-medicant that helps us to deal with what we've strived for and, and been disappointed by? What do you need to confront yourself on about how you have already quit. In other words, is there something that you have already given up on that you need to return to? But before you return to it, you need to do some heart work to fix something that's there. You need to confess something, at least to yourself. Perhaps you need to confess it to a friend. You may even need to walk into your boss's office or into a ministry team situation and say, I know I'm not doing what I should. I know that for the last six months, I've had a pretty bad attitude, and I'd like to tell you a little bit about what's going on. I don't know that how, how that conversation would need to play out in your life, but I just want to pose that question for you. All right, here's the next one. Who can I share these things with? And that means your whole growth process. Is there somebody else that you could help with what you're learning, with what you're discovering about yourself or or this whole journey? Is there somebody that you need to have some fellowship with in the next few weeks and just share where you are in life? Uh, not expecting them to do anything for you necessarily, but, but just to talk it through with somebody. Somebody, hopefully, who is equally committed to growth. A couple of final questions. This one is, who have I blamed for things in my life when it's really not that person's fault? Now, I know husbands and wives are great at this. 
kids and their parents are great at this. And incidentally, in both of those relationships, it flows both ways. Kids blame parents. Parents blame kids. Husbands blame wives. Wives blame husbands. And when they get alone, if they have time to be alone, they have to concede, I blame the wrong person. This is on me and I need to own it. All right. Final question. Is there someone I've wounded or hurt or lashed out at and whom I need to make an apology to or make some amends to? And that's a good way to wrap up this topic of realism. Have I been unrealistic about blame or fault or responsibility? And do I need to take back the ownership of something that has been mine to own all along, but I've pushed that on to somebody else and made them carry a burden that wasn't theirs to carry? All right, guys, that's all I've got for this week, and we'll get into another topic next week. I hope this has been helpful to you. As I say every week, hey, if there's somebody that you think could benefit from listening to this, would you please share it with them? It might be the most loving thing you could do for them this week. See you again next week.